turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 John chapter 5. And in just a moment, uh, we'll read beginning with verse number 6. 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 6. Uh, Every year, there are some 30 million Americans who receive in the mail an official envelope with a piece of paper that features their state seal or their county seal, features prominently on that envelope or piece of paper. But inside the envelope, there's a statement which says something to the effect, by order of superior court, you are hereby summoned to appear for jury duty at such and such time, on such and such date, and your immediate response is required. Now, some folks have never served on jury duty. Others had said that they must be at the top of the mailing list because they've served three and four times. I would imagine that all of us have had that experience, and you know that with that experience, more than likely you've gone through that process of selection, and then perhaps there's a trial where testimony is heard and a decision is reached. And if you've never experienced jury duty, well... At some point, there's a good chance you probably will. Well, there's a very real sense in which the Apostle John issues a summons within this text. And this is a passage in which he presents us with key testimony concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, you'll notice that the word testimony, uh, he uses at least six separate times, uses the word testify at least twice and all told, there's, there's a form of the word uh, uh, martyr, the Greek word where we get the word martyr from, or witness, testimony, testify, at least 10 times in these verses, verses 6 through 12, John will use this word. And so his point is that Christians have a very unique testimony that bears witness to the truth of who Jesus Christ really is. If you're a Christian, you have a testimony. And there's a sense in which Christian testimony is the testimony of the gospel. This is the testimony that we are to take into the world. You know, Jesus doesn't send his followers into the world to come up with their own ideas of who he is and who we want him to be. No, we're sent into the world with a very specific testimony. Uh, with a very specific message concerning his person and his work. All of us have a unique testimony in the subjective sense, the way that we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Your testimony may be that you came to faith when you were younger. Others have a different testimony. Uh, Maybe you you came to faith when you were an adult, uh, later in life. But the point is, all of us have a message a testimony that we're to bear. And so the Apostle John deals specifically with this Christian testimony beginning in verse number six. And so let's read beginning with verse six through verse number 12. Referring to Jesus, uh, verse six says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, 
and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I want to speak from this subject this morning, evidence that demands a verdict. Evidence that demands a verdict. Within this passage of Scripture, the Apostle John is presenting us with key testimony or key evidence that demands a verdict, a verdict concerning the unique person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, in the world of marketing, you know that manufacturers and sales representatives, uh, they all use the power of testimony to try to sell their products. And you've seen those commercials and infomercials that feature a man or a woman whose life has been changed by whatever product is being promoted, whether it be pillows or whether it be pills or something else. Well, testimony is a powerful vehicle to communicate with others who may also become convinced. Well, testimony is powerful in a court of law as it relates to conviction or acquittal by a jury. If someone is an eyewitness who can testify to something that he or she has seen with their own eyes, then that becomes a powerful mechanism when it comes to convincing others of the truth. This is the language that John is using here in this passage of Scripture. Uh, he's used this language before, earlier in the epistle, uh, all the way back in chapter 1, he uses this same language uh, to refer to what he and the other apostles could bear witness to concerning Jesus and his true identity. Uh, he says in the opening verses of chapter 1, that which was from the beginning. Now listen to this. Here's his testimony. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning this word of life. John says that the life was made manifest and we've seen it. He says we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. So in other words, John says that he and the apostles were eyewitnesses who could testify to the claims of the gospel. And so here in these verses in chapter 5, John is presenting his case as if he were in a court of law, one in which he calls various witnesses to the stand to testify to the truth of who Jesus truly is. And you know that in a jury trial, you have uh, someone against whom a charge has been brought. You've got witnesses and key pieces of evidence that are sifted through, after which there's a verdict that is reached. And so it's not hard for us to imagine that scenario within these verses as the Apostle John is addressing his readers concerning the person of Jesus. So notice a few things here. Number one, notice the charge that's been made. What is the charge that has been made concerning the person of Jesus? 
Well, again, keep in mind, in his letter, the Apostle John has been countering many of those arguments that were put forward uh, by those who would deny the humanity and the deity of Jesus. So much of what John has written in 1 John uh, is, is, is been written to counter those arguments of the Gnostics. The word gnosis means knowledge. Those who claim to have some type of secret or superior knowledge. And in particular, there was a guy by the name of Serenthus who came along. He became prominent in Asia Minor, even established a school of thought in Asia Minor in the first century, late first century, that basically wanted to distinguish between Jesus the man and the eternal Christ. And so Serenthus and his followers made this claim that there was a difference between the historical Jesus and the eternal Christ. The eternal Christ came upon the man at his baptism, but according to Serenthus, uh, the eternal Christ left him before he was crucified. And so you know that this is not the claim of the gospel. The gospel writers claim that Jesus is the Christ sent into the world with a very specific mission. And so John is writing so much of, of, of 1 John to counteract those arguments that were being made. And so Gnosticism, so this may seem strange, but I think when you understand it against that background of dealing with Serenthus and those Gnostics, John is saying of Jesus, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. What does he mean when he says that Jesus came by water and blood? Well, he's countering the claims of Serenthesis and others who claim that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ comes upon him only at his baptism but leaves before his suffering. Because we know that Old Testament prophecy said that the Christ had to suffer. That was the whole purpose that he came into the world to begin with. Serenthus says, well, the death of Jesus was nothing more than the death of an ordinary man. This was the son of Joseph and Mary and nothing more. And that right there shows you why heresy is such a subtle thing. But listen, it is a damning thing because only Jesus Christ could suffer and die for the sins of humanity. And that's the claim of the gospel. And that's the testimony that John and the apostles have borne witness to. And so there's an accusation, and this is followed up by the argument then. John is emphatic when he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And so his big concern centers around the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, keep in mind what he said in the first five verses concerning Jesus in verse 1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And verse 5, he says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so what a person believes about Jesus is of utmost importance. Because your eternal salvation depends upon what you believe about Jesus Christ. Is he merely a Christ among many Christs? Is he merely a savior among the world's smorgasbord of saviors? Or is he the unique one and only Christ, the unique one and only savior of mankind? Because folks, that's the testimony of the apostles. That's what they bear witness to. That's the testimony of the gospels. That's the testimony of Israel's prophets. 
And John says in this passage that this is God's own testimony concerning his son. So Jesus, he, he, he is Christ who is presented and comes both by water and blood. That word came there in uh, verse six. This is an important word. And, and the idea is he's come with a very specific purpose. And that purpose is suffering. Uh, the purpose is to suffer and die and bear the sins of his people. The whole purpose of the Messiah was to deliver his people from the bondage of sin and the dreadful consequences of sin. As a result of sin, we were under the wrath of God. We needed to be delivered from the grip of Satan, the evil one. And Messiah had to come and make an atonement for sin and set us free from its power. This is the very truth that Jesus explains to his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Uh, Luke 24, here's what he says. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Luke says that beginning from Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so here's where Israel missed it when, when they were looking for Messiah to come as sort of a political savior. Uh, surely the Messiah and his work is to overthrow Roman occupation and deliver the kingdom to Israel once more. But what they missed is the fact that the, the Old Testament prophets bore witness, testimony to the fact that Messiah had to come and suffer for the sins of his people. Because that's the whole purpose of his first advent. There's a very real sense in which Jesus was born for the specific purpose of dying as the one and only sacrifice for our sin. And in this way, he alone is our perfect savior. And so why is John emphasizing both water and blood? Well, I take this to be a reference to the Savior's baptism, where Messiah is formally presented, where he comes and he identifies with those that he's come to save, and blood is reference to his crucifixion. Now, many Bible scholars will tell you that 1 John, in many ways, is, is commentary on the Gospel of John. What was the whole purpose of the Gospel of John? Well, uh, John says in John chapter 20, I believe it's in verse number 31, that his purpose in writing his gospel, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John says, I've written my gospel and, and, and I've mentioned all of these things so that you may believe. So he's written his gospel with unbelievers in mind so that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, it's interesting to me that John begins his gospel not with Bethlehem, not with the story of Mary and Joseph, unlike Matthew's gospel, unlike Luke's gospel. He doesn't deal with any of those events concerning the nativity. He does make a statement in his introduction and prologue in his gospel as to the person of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed Christ from eternity past. He is indeed the Word made flesh. But immediately in John chapter 1, he begins with the testimony of our Savior's baptism. In fact, why don't you turn to John chapter 1 in, in his gospel. Look at what he says there, beginning in verse number 19, as he begins his gospel account with the presentation of Israel's Messiah and John the Baptist who's there baptizing. 
And verse 19 of John chapter 1 says, this is the testimony of John, who when certain Jews sent from Jerusalem asked him this question, who are you? John the Baptist says, well, I'm not the Christ. Who are you then? Are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answers, no. Who is he? He's the forerunner, the one who serves a very specific role as the one who will go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah, the one who's going to announce the Messiah, present the Messiah to Israel. And you read about that in verse number 29. The next day he sees Jesus coming toward him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Down in verse 32, John bore witness, and here's what he said. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So there you have the testimony of water. There you have the testimony of, of, of our Lord's baptism. Now, does it seem strange that the Messiah would begin his ministry by being baptized? Especially when you consider that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin. Jesus had no sin, he was sinless. He was perfect in every way. Why is it that he would be baptized? In fact, we know that this is something that John the Baptist himself initially protests, acknowledging the fact that he needed to be baptized by Jesus, and yet Jesus is coming to him in order to be baptized by John. Someone says, well, what is the, what's the mystery here? Why is it that the Savior had to be baptized? Because listen, it is in his baptism that his death and his suffering and his identifying with sinners is clearly seen and put on display in a very tangible way. Because in his baptism, our sinless Savior came to identify with us. What then is the significance of a Christian's baptism? Listen, when you're in the waters of baptism as a new believer, this is how you publicly are now identifying with him. In his baptism, he came to identify with me, a sinner that he came to save. And now when I stand in the water of baptism as a believer in Christ, I'm publicly identifying with him. Don't tell me that baptism is unnecessary in the Christian life. There are scores of people who say, you know what? I'm not all about baptism. It just seems like a strange ceremony to me. I'm a believer. That's fine. Why is it that Jesus commands us upon coming to faith in him? Why is it in the Great Commission that Jesus commands his followers to, to, to share the gospel, to make disciples, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who come to faith? Because this is the way that a person publicly identifies with Jesus Christ as their Lord. The New Testament knows nothing about walking down an aisle. The New Testament says nothing about signing your name to a piece of paper or a card. And I'm all, I'm all with that. I, I thank God for those tools and mechanisms. But biblically, the way that a believer publicly acknowledges his or her faith in Jesus Christ is, is, is water. It's standing before a group of people and humbling himself or humbling herself so much so that, listen, 
They're completely immersed in that body of water, which is symbolic of death. I'm identifying with Christ in his death. And listen, you're brought up out of that watery grave by someone else's arm, which is a symbol of the strength of God, the supernatural power of God that quickens you, that brings you to life. You didn't bring yourself to life. God gives life. And that's the point that John is making here in this passage of Scripture when he says that he who has the Son has life. All right, so, so here's his argument, and this is countering this argument of Serenthus and these other Gnostics who say, no, the eternal Christ came upon the man, Jesus, at his baptism, but it left him before he, he died on the cross. John says, no way. Absolutely not. Jesus is the Christ. Not a Christ. He is the Christ. He's Christ as he's born in Bethlehem. He's Christ as he's made his entrance into our world. He is Christ as he lives a sinless life, perfectly obeying the will of his Father in heaven. He's Christ as he's baptized and presented to Israel. He's Christ as he performs miracle after miracle, uh, ranging from giving sight to the blind to raising the dead to life again. He's Christ in his bleeding and in his dying on the cross, and he is Christ when he's raised to life again on the third day, and men and women, he will be Christ when he splits the eastern sky and returns to this earth. Jesus is the Christ. There is no other Christ. There is no other Savior. Now. You think, okay, well, why does, this, why does this really matter? How does this have any bearing on my life today? You're dealing with this ancient heresy from the first century. And here we are now in the 21st century. I know who Jesus is. Let me ask you this question. Do you think the average person walking the streets of our city knows who Jesus is? Because I guarantee you that you were to ask any man or woman in high point, do you know who Jesus is? There'd be a variety of answers that you would receive. Some would say, well, I've heard that he's the Savior. Do you believe that personally? Well, I don't know what I believe. And so they're confused concerning the person of Jesus. Some would say, well, Jesus was a religious figure, but I do not believe that he is the Son of God. I don't believe that he's God incarnate. They're confused concerning the person of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? Some will say, well, Jesus came to teach us how to live, to teach us the golden rule and to turn the other cheek. Is that why he came? That's not his primary purpose in coming. And so not only are people confused concerning the person of Jesus, but they're confused concerning the work of Jesus. And you add to the fact that you've got so many others out there who are, are spreading certain ideas. You heard of Deepak Chopra? You know, he was Oprah Winfrey's guru. He's been on television, written a lot of books. Listen to what he says. I want to offer the possibility that Jesus was truly, as he proclaimed, a Savior. Not the Savior, not the one and only Son of God. No, Jesus embodied the highest level of enlightenment. And so according to him and according to others, the Christ is to be distinguished from Jesus the man. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like Serenthus to me. 
Sounds like the enemy is still trying to peddle those same old lies, although it's changed clothes and goes by a different name, but it's still the same issue. And what John is saying in this passage of Scripture, you cannot distinguish between Jesus the man and Jesus the Christ. Because Jesus in his person, there is a unity of person. He is the God-man. He is unique. There is none other like him. Muhammad's not in the same ballpark with him. The Buddha's not in the same ballpark with him. No other religious figure is even in the same orbit with him. He alone is the Christ. And that's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. All right, so, so you've got then this charge that's been made. What's the charge? Well, Jesus is a Christ. He's not the Christ. And John deals with that. And so to deal with that, notice secondly how he calls for some witnesses. There are some witnesses whom he summons. He says there at the end of verse 6, the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, the blood, these three agree. So he's calling three witnesses to the stand each one of which uniquely bears witness to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And so who are these witnesses? Well, the first is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit bears witness to the truth of who Jesus is. And, and we know that that's exactly what Jesus said the Spirit would do. John 16, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He won't speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. And then Jesus said this, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So it is the unique work of the Holy Spirit to testify about Christ, to exalt Christ. And because of that, the person of Jesus Christ becomes the touchstone of truth or error. And it's the Spirit of God who testifies to the truth of who Jesus is as the unique God-man, as the Christ. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God can deny the truth of Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Well, John is saying the same thing here when he says the Spirit testifies because he is the Spirit of truth. So the Spirit bears witness. The second witness that he calls to the stand is the water. And again, this is, this is reference to the Lord's own baptism. This is he who came by water. That word water is found no less than four times in verses six, seven, and eight. And so here it's the water of the Jordan River itself. The baptismal waters of Jesus being called to testify as a witness to the true identity of Jesus. What is it that happened according to the gospel accounts when Jesus was baptized? There's a voice from heaven affirming the fact, confirming the fact, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So here you have the testimony of heaven itself, God the Father himself testifying to the truth of who the son is. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Lamb of God, heaven's own Lamb, 
come to take away the sins of the world. The third witness that John calls to the witness stand is the blood. Not merely the spirit, not just the water of baptism, but the blood or the death of Jesus upon the cross. The word blood occurs three times in verses six, seven, and eight. And so this contradicts those false claims of the Gnostics who said that the eternal Christ left Jesus before he was crucified. No, John says the blood bears witness to the fact that Christ was crucified for sinners. Because the death of Jesus was a unique sacrifice. It was the substitution of the God-man in the place of sinners. And it means that the blood that coursed through his veins was precious and one of a kind. Listen to me, church. That's why Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but you were redeemed, ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus was precious blood, unique blood. No trace of sin, no hint of Adam whatsoever here. This is precious, unique blood is that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And John was there at the foot of the cross. The apostle John himself could bear witness to what he saw. John even writes about it in John 19. He watched as the Savior's side was pierced with the Roman spear. John recorded what he saw. He said, at once there came out blood and water. And he who has saw it, saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. So here you have the threefold witness of the Spirit the water, the blood. And water and blood sort of being used as bookends or brackets which can sum up the entire purpose for which Christ came into the world. To identify with sinners like me and you and to suffer and die in our place as our ransom, as our substitute. Which means that at the cross, Jesus Christ dealt with your sin and my sin for eternity. And that means that my sin and your sin will never be brought up again because Jesus, the Lamb of God, has taken it away. This is why Mosaic Law says in Deuteronomy chapter 19 that it's only on the evidence of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So here's the charge that's established by three witnesses, the spirit, the water, the blood. Jesus is indeed the Christ who has dealt with your sins. And your sins are forgiven if you're in Jesus Christ and you have life. So you've got the charge that's made, the witnesses who were summoned. Where does that leave us? Verses 11 and 12. Well, the verdict that's given. What's the verdict? And this is not something, something that's subject to you and I as members of a jury, but this is the verdict of God the Father himself concerning the Son. John says, whoever believes in the Son has this testimony in himself. In other words, there's something in me as a Christian, there's something in you, it's rather someone in you as a Christian who bears witness to the truth of who Jesus is. It's the Holy Spirit. 
Does the Holy Spirit living within you not confirm in your heart and in your mind who Jesus Christ really is? Is there not something within you as a believer that keeps bringing you back to this same precious message day in and day out? Is there not something that keeps bringing you back to this same old book that you've read day in and day out, but you can't get away from the fact that Jesus is the Lamb, the Messiah, the Christ who's taken away my sins? He is the God-man. He is not just a Savior. He is the Savior, the one and only Savior. He is my Savior. Does that cry not well up from within your heart as a believer? Where does that come from? It's the Spirit in you. Or John says it's the witness that now is within you. So think about this. He's dealt with evidence for the gospel, both in the external sense, the historical account of what Jesus came to do, what he did, as it's in history, but now he's dealing with the internal evidence. That is what he's done in my life, in your life, now that you've come to faith. And so the testimony that a Christian has is both objective, which means we point to history, what God has done in real time, what God has done in time, space, matter. That's the objective evidence, but there's also some subjective evidence here. What he's done in my life, he's changed me. He's forgiven me. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. This is the testimony of God himself. And so to look at the gospel and say, that's not true. That is the most serious offense because you're making God out to be a liar. To look at the, the man Jesus in history and to say, well, he was a man and nothing more, what you're doing is you're denying the testimony of God himself and that's dangerous ground. And here's the verdict. This is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his son. And whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So here's how John sort of states the verdict here. He states it in the positive sense, and then he states it in the negative sense. In the positive sense, here's what he says. No Jesus, no life. As in K-N-O-W. No Jesus, no life. If you have Jesus, John says you have life. If you possess Jesus Christ as your Savior, John says that you possess eternal life. And the word that he uses there, life, it's zoe. There are at least three words in Greek translated as life in English. You've got bios. This refers to physical life. It's the word we get biology from. Then there's the word suke. This refers to the psychological life of the, the, the human soul, the mind, the emotion. We get the word psychology from this word. But the word that John uses here, it's not bios as in physical. It's not suke as in emotional. No, it's zoe, which means life eternal. This is the life of God. 
And so eternal life, we tend to think of something, this is, this is something in, in terms of duration. And while that's true, it's also something that's true in terms of quality. He that hath the Son has Zoe. You have the life of God. This is the life of God that's come to take up residence in you. That before you came to know Jesus, you were spiritually dead. But now he's made you alive and he's given you his spirit and you possess his life. And so Christians are those who possess life. This is why Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, Zoe, and that you might have it more abundantly. So was he saying, I've come to merely help you have a better life? That's not what he was saying there. Is he saying, well, I've come that, you, that I might enrich or improve the life that you already have? That's not what he's saying at all. Jesus says, I've come for this purpose, to give you what you do not have, but what you desperately need if you're to live for eternity with me and have fellowship with me. You need my life. You need Zoe. And so here's the positive news. Here's the verdict. Know Jesus, then you know life. Don't you know Jesus? You know life. But notice that John also states it in the negative. And here's how it's stated in the negative. Know Jesus, know life. As in N-O. Know Jesus, know life. Because he who has the son has life, but he who does not have the son does not have life. And have there, this is, this is present tense. Speaking of present tense possession. If you have the son, then you presently possess eternal life. It's not something you're waiting for when you die. It's something you've been given now as a believer. But if you don't have Jesus, John says you don't possess life. You may possess a lot of money, but that can't give you any life. You may possess a lot of fame and a lot of stuff, but that can't give you any life. You, you may possess trophies and accomplishments, and a lot of people may know your name, but that can't give you one ounce of life because without Jesus, there is no life. But with Jesus, there is life. And that's what John is saying here. And so you know what? The gavel's brought down. The verdict is in. John says Jesus is Lord. Let's stand for prayer this morning. <clears throat> I'll just state this question the same way I've stated it just a moment ago. Do you know Jesus? If so, then you've been given his life. But if you don't know Jesus, the greatest thing that you need, my friend, is his life. And that's why he is the Christ. That's why he came into this world. That's why he lived a perfect life that you and I could not live because of our sin. And yet he went to the cross and paid the price for my sin and your sin. And to show that his sacrifice has been accepted by God the Father, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he's alive. And a living Savior 
can give life to those who trust in him. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you don't know Jesus, come to faith today. Believe this gospel message. Receive Christ as your Savior and your Lord. As Parker's going to lead us in just a moment, if you need to come and you need to pray, I want to invite you to do that. I'll be here. Pastor Mark will be here. We'd love to counsel with you, pray with you, even after the service. You say, Pastor, I, I want to be saved. I need to be baptized. Then come talk to one of us. Lord, I'm so thankful for the truth of your word and the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the one and only Savior of the world. And Lord, this is the message that we have got to take to our neighbors who so desperately need life because they're spiritually dead. The world has nothing to offer them but distraction, Lord, and the evil one wants to keep people in the dark. But Lord, you've called us to be your ambassadors, to be your witnesses, and to testify of what we know to be the truth. And so, Lord, would you use us in that way? This week, Lord, we ask that you would use us in that way. May we be discerning in our relationships with people, the conversations we have with people. Lord, we have something to give to the world. And it's Jesus the Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.